Welcome to the Change Lives, Changing Lives podcast, a ministry of Locust Hill Baptist Church in Travelers Rest, South Carolina. My name is Michael Hodge, Senior Pastor at Locust Hill. At Locust Hill, we celebrate the change that God alone could bring in our lives, and we also recognize the calling to share that good news with others. Lives changed by Christ, changing lives by Christ. We welcome you to this podcast where we want to equip you to live in the reality of a life changed by Christ. Disciple-making is at the core of a church's calling, and we want to take advantage of every resource we can to encourage you today. We invite you to join us for a service Sundays at 10.15 a.m., Wednesdays 6.30 p.m. Our church is located at 5534 Locust Hill Road in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. Our website is locusthillchurch.org. I want to welcome you to the podcast. After this episode, we have just one more episode to record. It's been a long commitment, and I applaud all of the staff for your dedication to stick with it. Great job. We've had some great conversations, and we look forward to one more episode, and we will make it across the finish line. Yes. It's stretched all of us. We've had a lot of things that we've discussed as we walk through these episodes. Maybe it's taken some of us out of our comfort zone, would you say? <laughs> but I think we've learned a, a good bit, and so I'm grateful for just the conversations we've had. And one of the things that I often share about our staff is... We are committed to our own personal spiritual growth, and we recognize out of the overflow of that, there's your keyword, Will, that's how we'll lead. And so regardless of the responsibilities that we have here at the church, we want to be committed to our own spiritual growth. And it impacts us, it impacts our church. And so as we walk through the chapters today, we're looking at chapters 19, 20, and 21. It can be done. So we're coming to the end, and so we're going to look at these chapters together. Great chapters. I love these chapters. Chapter 19, we've already discussed before we started recording. One of our favorite chapters, Rich in Mercy, is the theme here. And so I think this is one of the clearest chapters on capturing the heart of Christ. And so to kick it off then... I want to go to you, Will, from Ephesians 1. It reads, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So what do you normally think of when you hear the word lavish? I don't know if you use that on a daily basis. But what does it mean that God lavished his grace on us? So I use this word so much I had to like Google search it. Okay. Um, yeah. to be able to <laughs> and so it means rich, um, elaborate. Um, and so, but if you think about the word lavish though, like the the New, New Living Translation says showered on, but what it really makes me think of is two things. Number one, like richness of his grace and mercy and 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 then how it's then how it's given to us so first of all it makes me think of like a cake you know when you got a rich cake and you can only have a little bit of it and you're like oh man like i don't think i can take any more of this you know what i'm saying it's, it's so good you don't need a lot of it and then the second thing it makes me think of is you know the woman with the issue of the blood when she know she said all i gotta do is just touch the hem of his garment and that's all i need i know that that's going to heal me and she had that kind of faith and yet when God gives us his grace and his mercy is literally like a shower. Like it just 
engulfs us. Like it, it just comes over us, but not so much that we can't handle. It's like this kind of odd feeling of like, man, this is so good. I don't think I can have no more. And yet it just keeps coming, but it's not overwhelming. And so when I think of this word lavish and how does it mean for his grace, that's, that's kind of what makes me think of it. Oh, wow. It's interesting that you give the definition of lavish, meaning given the word rich, because um, Orland points out that uh, it's interesting that God tells us he is rich in something only here in Ephesians 2, 4, when he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And so Tracy, that scripture verse is interesting because the significance, what do you see as the significance of the word being in the phrase, God being rich in mercy? Um, merciful is not just a characteristic of God. It's who he is. Um, it was interesting. One definition I looked up described it as a condition. So it's not just something here and there. Um, it's not something he used to be or he is right now. It's not what he's becoming. It's what he always has been, always will be. Um, and he can't help but show compassion and mercy. Mm-hmm. So That's it's just good. like who he is. Mm-hmm. That is good. So Michael, coming circling back around to you, um, Orland gives a quote here on page 174 that says, divine love is not forbearance or long-suffering or patience. Are there times when we think that God is impatient with our sin? And, and how does that rich in mercy apply here? Yeah, and I look at this question in this section. I think this is one of those areas where we have to tread carefully because we can certainly abuse this. You know, the idea of God's patience here saying God impatient with our sin. You look at the Old Testament story and you certainly see God's patience when yeah. repeatedly God could have just pulled another scene like in the story of Noah and just wiped out the population. And yet we see God's patience over and over. But also it doesn't mean that he's indifferent that he's unmoved by our sin because he's holy. And so I think we can we can look at the Gospels and we see how Jesus responded to the Pharisees, the scribe. Look at how he reacted in the temple. We were just looking at this in our life group. When it had become a marketplace, he was moved with anger over how people had turned the temple just into a marketplace. So he is patient, but he's not indifferent. And I think we have to qualify that. And so how does mercy apply then? Well, the fact that he is rich in mercy, that's our only hope. Because his holiness demands that judgment for our sin, and yet he is rich in mercy. And so Dane Ortland says it this way. He says on page 177, the mercy of God reaches down and rinses clean not only obviously bad people, but fraudulently good people, both of whom stand in need of resurrection. And so I think we look at you know our sin and we say God is impatient with us. And we'll come back to this later in the chapter, just that God is frustrated with us. We see this in the next section as well. But he is patient, but he's holy, and his mercy extends and allows us to have that relationship with him. And so tied in with that, Katina, here's a quote. It says, Christ was sent not to mend wounded people or wake sleepy people or advise confused people or inspire bored people or spur on lazy people or educate ignorant people, but to raise dead people. What's the proof of God's rich mercy in our life? Despite the hardships and sins we may face. 
Well, I like what Ortland said on page 179. It says that evidence of Christ's mercy toward you is not your life. The evidence of his mercy toward you is his. Mm -hmm. Mistreated, misunderstood, betrayed, abandoned, eternally in your place. If God sent his own son to walk through the valley of condemnation, rejection, and hell, you can trust him as you walk through your own valleys on um, your own valleys on your way to heaven. Um, you know, I had a lot of children ask me exactly what does mercy mean? And, you know, they hear that word, they hear grace, they hear mercy. And so I just wanted to say it right here just so because this whole chapter is about mercy. Mercy is when God spares us from bad things we deserve. And that's what he's doing. He died on the cross for us. He took that, what which is what we deserve. And that's the mercy that he has for us. He is rich in that. He loves us that much. And I love the statement. He said... God is not tight-fisted with mercy. Right. So that's our idea that we have to somehow earn that open hand of God, and yet he's pouring out his mercy on us. And so rich in mercy, great chapter, great section here. And just tied in with that, then leading into chapter 20 is the title, Our Law-ish Hearts, His Lavish Heart. So coming back to Will's favorite word there, lavish. <laughs> lavish. The Son of God who loved me. And so this pulls from Galatians chapter 2. I've often heard it said, if you want to know doctrine of God, go to Romans. If you don't have much time, go to Galatians. So it's a much more abbreviated version of a lot of what we find in the book of Romans. And so here, this chapter is really based on Galatians chapter 2. And so we get to see, as he'll talk about in this chapter, the subjective side of salvation, justification, but also the objective side of salvation, God's love for us. And so diving into that conversation, I want to begin with Amanda and this quote, there are two ways to live the Christian life. You can live it either for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. What's the difference between living for God or living from him? I know earthly illustrations only go so far when trying to explain the love of Christ and the relationship we have with him. But the one that was used in this chapter about the 12-year-old boy working to try to secure his position in the family helped me to understand the difference between living for the heart of Christ versus living out of love of Christ. We can either try to work thinking we can earn God's love and secure our position in his family by doing what we think is right, or we can rest in God's love as his own child and allow him to work through us to demonstrate his love to others. And I think that's our tendency. We're trying to earn what we already have and that identity of being adopted as a child of God. And so, Jason, I'll pull you into the conversation with this quote. It says, the battle of the Christian life is to bring your own heart into alignment with Christ. That is, getting up each morning and replacing your natural orphan mindset with a mindset of full and free adoption into the family of God through the work of Christ, your older brother who loved you and gave himself for you out of the overflowing fullness of his gracious heart. So the question then is, do believers try to strengthen their standing with God based on how they perform spiritually? And what's Galatians teach us about being made right with God? Well, the answer to that first question is a resounding yes. I think... In my opinion, believers are constantly trying to do more, be more, give more in hopes of getting out of a problem or avoiding a trial or a circumstance altogether. Um, I call it the seeing blue lights in the rearview mirror syndrome. 
that people see that and it prompts empty promises to God. If you'll just get me out of this ticket, yes. I promise you I'll go to church. Yeah. I'll, I'll give more. I'll do more. I believe most people live with a mindset that they're standing before God is dependent solely on what they can do. You ask what Galatians teaches us, it brings in that phrase, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, Galatians teaches us that it's nothing about what we do, how much we do, how much we give, how much, what we say that makes us right with God, but it's all about what Christ has done. The awesome and amazing thing about that is while God's grace and his mercy are new to us every single day, it's not just what gets us into that relationship with God, but it's also what is the guardrails that, that kind of give us that daily walk with Christ that we are to we are to have. Yeah, so you know, pulling from Galatians, Galatians 5, 1, for freedom Christ mm -hmm. has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. And it's interesting because we'll use our freedom, what he's given us, to walk in the joy of that relationship with him, and we'll run right back into slavery. Mm -hmm. And he'll set us free to make a choice that honors him or make a choice that rejects him. And you look at our pattern. We have freedom and we choose the very thing that then puts us right back into slavery. Yeah. So what are we using our freedom for? So his lavish heart, that gift that we have. So Ray, pulling you in, Dane uses a great quote from John Newton. Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is power. How do we devalue God's gift of mercy, righteousness, and strength when we attempt to earn them through our lawish attempts? What would you say? Well, that was tough. I had, it just took me about three times to read through the chapter. And um, <laughs> I'm not going to... Uh, and then all of a sudden the light came on. And um, the first thing is... Uh, in the chapter it says God's grace and love is not only the gateway but also the pathway to Christian life and then of course that threw me to Psalms 119 your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path and I just said okay that's that, that's it and then okay then I, my mind got to Ephesians um, uh, 1 uh uh, chapter, uh, verse 4, long ago, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. His unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And this gave him great joy. And so as I was to answer the question, there's nothing we can do. It's like the song uh, that Elvina Hall says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. But as Dane Orland says, uh, it goes on um, about uh, the objective part and subjective part. The objective part, justification. Uh, that's that's the work of Christ. I mean, he like I say, he paid it all. That's it. We're justified only because he paid it all. And then, of course, the subjective part um, is your sanctification. That's your walk. And then as you walk, you're going to want to do things. It's not because it's, almost every religion in the world has it's this plus this. Then right here, and, and, and we know that because of Jesus Christ, he paid it all. That debt was paid. He said on the cross, it is finished. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing that you can pay for, whether it be LDS or Roman Catholic or whatever. There's nothing to pay. 
that was paid. That was finished at the cross. And um, I just, as um, we finished it, uh, God's grace and love is not only, well, I guess not the only, but again, the pathway in this Christian life. Um, there's nothing that we can do, nothing where we can go with it other than we, and what we try to do is we try to build on it, but there's, there's nothing else to build on it because it's all been put for us. All we got to say is yes. Yes. And then our, our, our sanctification begins all the way to glorification. So that quote there, March 1767, John Newton, and those key words, his mercies are more. And so I was looking just at the story behind that song, his mercy is more. And the lyrics of this are very familiar. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins they are many. His mercy is more. So those lyrics are based on that letter, sermon by John Newton, his mercy is more. So what a beautiful picture here. So Sanders, we think about this, and again, pulling from Galatians, let's consider what Paul means when he says that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, pulling that from Galatians 3.10. So what does it mean that Paul speaks of being of works here? To be of works is not to fall short, but it's you're marching in the wrong direction. We can't, uh, our doing and relying on our own actions is not what we need to have to receive our salvation. Our salvation can only come from our faith and from God. Our trust in our own words suggests the rejection of God's freely offered gift of salvation. So it's to remember it's not what we can do or we can rely on it's only through God that we can have salvation you know uh, he comes off of that by closing out the chapter Will with this quote kind of come back to you with this question the quote is we can go through the whole day trumpeting the futility of doing works to please God all the while saying the right thing from an of works heart and our natural of worksness reflects not only a resistance to the doctrine of justification by faith, but also even more deeply a resistance to Christ's very own heart. So, Will, the question for you is, how does Christ's work and the heart from which that atoning work flowed address our of worksness? So, I, I love that I got this question because we've been walking through the book of James and some people read in James chapter 2 and start getting super confused in their faith because James says you're justified by works and not by faith alone. And people seem to trip up on that. But I think what we must do is to consider the source of what our work comes from. And it's the finished work of Christ because he goes on to say this for as the body apart as in James two twenty six, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead. So also faith apart from works, is dead like that you can't divorce both of those things and the reason why i say consider the source is because what orton's talking about in this heart is us like almost trying to like 
earn God's favor or earn God's love or earn our way into heaven, which we know that that was completely paid for by Christ's death on the cross and by his resurrection. And so James goes further in chapter three to give us this picture of what is your source, like what comes from you. And it says in 311, does a spring pour forth from the same mouth opening both fresh water and salt water? Can a, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives and or a grapefruit produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. If you are considering your source, you don't work for your salvation. You work because you've been saved. And the justification of our works shows the inward change in which we've allowed the Holy Spirit to come in and start making us more like Christ. So now instead of us pursuing favor, love, and all this stuff, saying, okay, I got to earn this, we say, no, I already have this. And my life is to glorify God and to lead others to Christ. And I love the closing statement that just captures all of that. Our lawish hearts relax as his lavish heart comes home to us. Ooh, that's good. That's a good phrase. I bet he worked on that one a little while. <laughs> <laughs> so that sets up the final chapter we'll discuss in this session. Then he loved us then, he'll love us now. And pulling from one of my favorite texts, We'll love this one as well, Romans 5 eight. One of those but God statements, the big transitions of the Bible. When we're in our sin, but God proves his love for us. And so as we think about that, one of the quotes in the section is this. It's one thing to believe that God has put away and forgiven all our old failures that occurred before a new birth. It's another thing to believe that God continues just as freely to put away all our present failures that occur after new birth. And so the question we have to consider is, do we have a harder time believing God fully forgives our sins as a Christian than believing he forgives your past sins as a non-Christian? I think it's a good question to wrestle with. It's as if we look at that moment of salvation as God acts in one way, but then in our daily lives, he acts differently. But it's the same God, same grace, same mercy extending to us. And so... You know, it really ties in with what we learned in the last chapter, how Galatians speaks to believers, how quickly we forget the gospel. And that was a challenge that Paul gave to the church at Galatia, that they had run away from the gospel that had been preached to them. And so he says it this way. He says, a love infected with disappointment, a flustered love. So that theme really goes all throughout the book, that God is somehow frustrated with us. That's our mindset. But he looks on us with a bit of disappointment. And yet the same grace, the same love that saves us is the same love that we live in each and every day. And so the question for Jason, as we close out then, is it possible for you who are in Christ to become any more secure in the heart of Christ than you are right now? Will you be more secure in heaven than you are right now? Well, the answer to both of those questions is no. Okay, good. I was a little concerned how you're going to answer. <laughs> um, you know, Spur Spurgeon said it best, and I think Ortland quotes him um, in when he says, Christ loved me before all the world. God chose me, set his heart on me. And as I live in Christ, nothing can separate me or make me more secure than I am right now. Ortland says that, quote, God has already executed everything needed to secure my happiness. And he did that while I was an orphan. Nothing can unchild me, air quotes. Not even me. So back to what Spurgeon was saying, since that time, God has not swerved, has not turned aside, nor has he changed. 
As I am united to Christ today, I'm as good as in heaven already. Three exclamation points. He's never left us. He's never shut off his compassion. And I pray that we live in light of that hope. God loved you then and he loves you now. So we've had the opportunity to reflect on chapters 19, 20, and 21. Rich in mercy, his lavish heart. He loved us then, he'll love us now. I want to thank you all for joining us for this podcast. We have just one more episode as we wrap up our study of Gentle and Lowly. Thank you for joining us for the conversation.